How is it that despite intense scrutiny and criticism in recent years, big tech companies such as Amazon, Google, and Facebook have seen their favorability drastically improve among consumers? In a word, the pandemic. In this episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast, we review the newly released Havas Group's prosumer report, Tech Forward, Why the Tech Trial Won't Happen. The report is rooted in an expansive study of 16,000 people across 32 markets. It asks whether or not these companies can maintain this newfound public support. Our roundtable discussion will explore how the pandemic has accelerated a fourth industrial revolution and why favorability of big tech companies has increased during the pandemic, as well as the ways that prosumers want these companies to be held more accountable. Moderating our conversation is Patty Sullivan, Senior Vice President and B2B Practice Head at Red Havas. She's joined by Jeremy Dale, CMO of Likewise, and Sebastian Hudos, Chief Strategy Officer of BETC Paris and one of the authors of the report. Then stick around for our Red Questionnaire. This month, Red Havas's Ellen Mallerney Barnes welcomes guest Nigel Hughes, Managing Director at Red Havas UK. But first up, Patty Sullivan gets our roundtable conversation underway. Sebastian and Jeremy, welcome to the latest episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I thought I'd kick things off today uh, by congratulating you, Sebastian, on your latest prosumer report. And before we jump into your findings, would you please set the context for our listeners by defining what a prosumer is and why we study them? Yeah, uh, super happy to be here again. Um, so we've been researching prosumers at Havas uh, for the last 20 years. So prosumer stands for uh, proactive consumer, uh, consumer, and there are type of consumers who are deeply involved in consumption, who are influential uh, to their peers, and who think that through their consumption, they can change the world for the better. So we identify them through a list of 12 questions and an algorithm, and they usually represent 20 to 30% uh, of consumers in one market. Uh, and what consumers are doing today, basically mainstream consumers will be likely to be doing uh, in the next six to 18 months. So it's a way for us as, as a network uh, to better understand how consumer perceptions are shifting and to understand what the future will bring. And this is what we bring as a knowledge to our clients. Thank you, that's very helpful. Uh, we've seen that the tech titans, Google, Facebook, Amazon, among others, have faced mounting criticism in recent years. They've been accused of everything from evading taxes and mistreating gig economy and warehouse workers to compromising user privacy and facilitating the spread of misinformation. You surveyed more than 16,000 people from across 32 markets to shed light on the state of big tech to help us better understand the consumer's relationship with tech companies and what big tech needs to do to keep users on its side. I'm curious, did you find that the criticism we've seen in the media is shared by consumers? So honestly, um, I could share a moment with you when we received the raw data and we were actually very surprised by, by the data at first. And this is why we actually named the report, uh, the take trial won't happen because what we see in the numbers uh, is actually that more than seven in 10 prosumer and it's actually 83% in China 
um, they say that their opinion of big tech companies actually improved during the pandemic. So in a time, you know, where like uh, there was uncertainty and uh, no possibility to plan about the future, actually big tech was really helpful to them. Uh, it actually helped us when, when you think about it back in March 2020 to stay connected with our loved ones, to continue to work, to shop, to teach, to learn, to stay entertained. So at a time where some government were seen as failing, actually trust uh, in tech was uh, rising and they emerged as a voice of like reason and provider of practical resources. So what we see, I mean, the pandemic effect is actually before the pandemic, we already knew that tech was useful in our daily life. But thanks to the crisis, we actually realized that we couldn't live without it. So this is why we see in, in this report that what we see in the media, the criticism we see in the media, actually uh, consumers are, are quite thankful uh, to tech for helping them get through the, the pandemic. You make an important point about the uh, pandemic, uh, Sebastian, and we all know and experience that we were all isolated like never before. And as you said, that isolation accelerated our very real need to be connected. Uh, Jeremy, can you talk about what you've seen in that regard? Yes, I think, um, I think the pandemic just accelerated all the trends which were already happening. We know we're living in the fourth industrial revolution. We know that the speed of change is like nothing we've ever seen before. And, you know, that's what's different about the fourth industrial revolution is, you know, the exponential growth that we are seeing. And that was said um, way before the, pan the pandemic actually hit. And so the pandemic has just accelerated that change even more. And I think we will never go back to the way we were before entirely. And I'll give you some examples from our business. Our business, likewise, we basically are a company so that when someone's tech goes wrong, we make it right. Whether a device is lost, stolen, broken, damaged, malfunctioning, in need of an upgrade, or someone doesn't know how to do something, we step in and respond to those. And what we saw during the pandemic was that with people working remotely, they were far more reliant on their devices, whether that be for remote working or whether it be for remote schooling. And so the devices went from being really important to absolutely essential. And it just you know, increased the importance of the devices. And we all know how, how reliant we are on our devices. Right, exactly. And, and in fact, I think I've heard you talk before um, that you know, our devices are now essentially an extension of ourselves and we really can't function properly without them, correct? Yes, I, you know, I always say we can't um, function productively without them. We can't live happily without them. And I think as I, I told you before, Patty, I was offline for three hours one morning a few months ago when my phone um, went down. And I'm literally going, I don't know where I need to be. I can't call anyone because all the numbers are in the phone. And I'm literally standing there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know who's supposed to call. And it was the most stressful three hours of my, of my life. And so we, we have all just got to that point where we are so reliant on our devices that we have to make sure that we have 
tech safety nets for when, you know, for when they fail on us. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that. I think we can all relate to the experience that you just shared. Uh, we've all felt that uh, panic and even despair when there's a technology uh, problem. And as you pointed out uh, just a few minutes ago, that solving these issues painlessly is really the guiding principle for likewise. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes, I think everybody wants to, no one wants their life to be interrupted. That's why, you know, our tagline is, you know, your, uh, my life uninterrupted. They don't want the disruption. You know, even the shortest disruption causes, you know, sig significant, um, you know, sort of pain for people. And so we are always trying to make sure that we are looking for innovative ways to resolve those problems quickly. We know people want the resolution to be what we call effortless. They want it with one contact. They don't want to be passed from department to department, uh, you know, at their provider having to re, you know, repeat again what the issues are. They don't want to have to press one and talk to someone about upgrade and then realize that they need to talk to someone else about repair and, and it's problematic. And so we fundamentally believe that we need to use intelligent ways to resolve tech problems quickly. Um, you know, the reason we actually, we've just changed our name to Likewise from Brightstar. And the reason we chose Likewise as a name was because it, it showcases the attitude we have with our customers. You know, our goal is to make sure that the end users' tech problems are resolved quickly. And we say, Likewise, you know, that's exactly our goal as well. We stand shoulder to shoulder. But Likewise is also a great name because it's made up of two words, like and wise. And we want customers to love how we resolve their problems, but we also want them to see that we're bringing intelligent solutions to the table. So one of the things which we've been seeing is that people think their phone's broken. They may in the past have mailed it into us. And so we created an app, which you can download from the app store onto your device. And that app does um, 10 key tests on your phone. And we can tell whether your phone actually needs repairing or whether it just needs a remote software upgrade or there's some dust in a port or there's something that can be fixed immediately. So in the past, we would have devices coming back to us. We'd then check them. We'd say there's nothing wrong with them and tell them what they needed to do and send it back to them. And it'd take up three days or so. And so we are now stopping literally 50% of the devices which used to come to us didn't need repairing. We could solve it remotely. So we believe that technology can solve technology's problems. And by introducing this app, we've been able to reduce the number of pointless, um, if you like, journeys that a phone makes in the whole process. So it's all about making it fast and effortless and, you know, and using intelligent solutions. Yeah, I really like that uh, line you just said about using technology to solve technology's uh, problems there, Jeremy. Um, I think we all agree that, uh, you know, we all feel a need to be connected, but I wondered, you know, is there a downside? We've read articles, we've listened to our friends, or even personally from time to time, we've probably felt that we rely too much on our devices and that we're in a constant uh, state of tech overload. Uh, Sebastian, did your research uh, find this as well? So what we see in the research is that 
uh, as I was saying, like tech is is essentially like a, uh, essential, uh, and we can't live without it. So eighty percent of our prosumers say that tech innovation actually makes their daily life easier. And to relate to what Jeremy was saying, actually, when it breaks down, we are, we are lost and, and we don't know what to do with ourselves. So 79% of, of consumers say that digital devices help them save time and only 21% say they cause them to waste time. So actually, this, this is a really positive re relationship to tech. And on a, on a bigger scale, when, when we ask people, do you see tech as a progressive uh, force uh, for good in, in many sectors? Uh, actually, a vast majority of consumers say that they see tech as a source of progress in mobility, in like education, and even in sensitive uh, activities like medicine. And I think uh, to, the, to Jeremy's point, I think uh, the, the COVID crisis was a proof point of our relationship to to tech and, and we've seen in medicine, we've seen like telemedicine, we've seen like a remote, remote surgery or even the use of AI in the diagnosis of, of certain diseases. So uh, actually tech has proven to be a, a force of progress uh, for, for many categories. What we see actually on the other hand, uh, because it, it would be too much of a positive state of mind if, if I didn't uh, mention the fact that consumers they, they think that tech should not get a, a free pass, uh, even if it's super useful for us. So 80% of our consumers uh, sample think that tech giants have acquired too much power uh, in our society. So it's on a much uh, bigger scale. Uh, and here we have to make a difference between e-commerce platforms and social media platforms. So basically, when we think about the Amazons and Alibabas of the world, they give so much of a service to everyone uh, on, the on the planet that they give us access to everything in a matter of minutes or hours. We only want them to control the collateral damage that they could bring. So when we ask the prosumer uh, what they should do to, for the future, uh, they say first that they should treat their employees better. This is the first concern. The second one is they should support local businesses because they are big global companies, but they have to care for the, for the businesses in, in the countries they are, they are settled in. And the, the third one, and only the third one, is about sustainability. So for e-commerce platform, it's kind of okay. They have to deal with the collateral damage. Uh, but for social media platforms, actually, prosumers are expected them to reinvent themselves. And I think the assault on the, on the Capitol in Washington has left some mark uh, in people's minds. So they were once seen as a powerful tool for to free all voices, etc. But more and more, they're, they're seen as a place for hatred, uh, for cyberbullying, etc., and even a danger for democracy. So when we ask the question, do you think social media companies are a threat to democracies? This is not the majority of consumers that think that way, but we have figures that depending on the country, but the, 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 uh, the, the global number is around 40%. So this is kind of huge. And it's, of course, bigger uh, in the US because, because the people are still in, have still in mind the images of the assault on the Capitol. Patty, can I just add to yes. those points? Um, I worked for Microsoft for nearly a decade. And one of the things which always impressed me about Microsoft was 
it wasn't just a great company, it was a good company. It had uh, doing the right thing at its heart. And so one of the things which, you know, Microsoft gives away billions of dollars in free software to nonprofits. Um, but one of the things it always did was it had a $1 license for Windows for education. And there was a famous meeting when, um, you know, Bill Gates apparently said, why are we charging schools for our products? We want, why would we hinder someone from being able to better themselves and, you know, and deliver their full potential? If they use our products when they're at school and it helps them get educated, they'll end up buying our products when they get into the workplace. So why would we stop someone from trying to better themselves? And so I think when we look at big tech, I think there is a difference between, you know, many of the companies and some companies, you know, and say I am a Microsoft advocate, um, you know, really do have helping people fulfill their full potential at their heart. And people see that. And, you know, and so, you know, I think you have to look a little bit at what a company stands for. And there's, you know, there's good and bad in big tech. Yeah, now that's really interesting. And, and I think that this discussion really illustrates that there are so many different layers and ways to look at big tech. And like many things, things are seldom black and white. There's a lot of nuances um, here. So uh, really very interesting. So I thought I would see if uh, Jeremy and Sebastian, if you had any final thoughts that you would want to share uh, with our listeners. Uh, Jeremy, go right ahead. Yeah, I think the thing I would say is technology is so empowering and it's a very powerful tool and it's only going to increase in terms of uh, what it enables us to do. But as with anything, um, there's always, I think Sebastian called it collateral damage coming out to the, you know, the side of it, you know, on social media. Social media is fabulous for being able to keep in touch with a wide group of people who you would normally lose touch with. But the collateral damage is that you end up looking at your behind the scene, you know, your life is a behind the scenes view, and all you see from your friends is a highlights reel. And that can cause, um, you know, if you like, mental health challenges with people when they think their life isn't as interesting as their friends. And so as technology evolves and people are using it in different ways, we need to look at the collateral damage and try and make sure that we as a society are responding to those and protecting you know things that happen i used to work in london and i'd walk past um you know on my way into work i'd walk past a lot of people who lived on the streets and i'd always try and give them you know a little bit of money to help them through the day i now when i started doing that in london again I don't have any money in my pocket anymore everything is a contact for society and i'm going like how do i you know, how do I, how are they surviving? And so we have to, as a society, work out how we cope with those things. Actually, to, to Jeremy's point, that there was a super interesting case um, in Cannes, the advertising film festival, um, around how LinkedIn and the big issue, they actually partnered to help people selling the, the newspaper on the streets when there was nobody actually in London and helped them through LinkedIn to contact the business people that they were selling in the city, et cetera, and to help them actually transform 
the big issue business, which is like a print newspaper business into a digital form and actually, by the way, giving them uh, an existence on LinkedIn and recognizing them as professionals, etc. So I think it's super interesting how tech can actually help us because I totally agree with you. I don't have any change in my pockets right now, but how, how tech can empower people to actually reinvent themselves and, and, and give them new opportunities uh, beyond just selling a print newspaper uh, on, on the street, you know? And, and beyond that, uh, actually to, to your point, Patty, the, the, I think as someone working in communications and, and advertising, uh, you were telling a story, Jeremy, about how Microsoft used to used to want to 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 give their product for free to schools, uh, and actually, that I think there's something missing right now in the in the big tech category. It's actually a story, you know, like beyond only being useful to people, being essential to people. What's the story we want to say about ourselves, etc.? Why is Facebook there? Because we see. Their product we use their product every day but we don't know why and this is what we try to ask people and and we we came up with four different scenarios for the future and for actually that big tech can help us dream about a positive future because we desperate desperately need to dream about a positive future and there are four scenarios i'm i'm, I'm not gonna go into the four scenarios but what we feel is like okay you're useful, you're essential, you, you, you stand up because you're, you're about your utility, your functionality, but big tech still needs to make us dream uh, with a story uh, because this is how we connect emotionally to these companies. Yeah, and, and one of the things which you, um, we feel passionate about at the moment is about tech poverty. What we've seen is that during this pandemic, the haves and have nots have got wider because there's so many children at school who don't have the technology to be able to learn. And education is so fundamental in terms of allowing people to fulfill their full potential. And this is, you know, and this is something we have tremendous opportunity to participate in with our repair and trading and, you know, and, and all of the recycling programs, which we do. Uh, but we feel it's something which isn't a one company issue. Tech, big tech together has to solve this problem. And say tech poverty is something we feel very passionate about. I totally agree. And, and this is super interesting to see, for instance, uh, former CEOs or CEOs of, of big tech, they spend millions for going into space. You're like, can you help solve like uh, the earth problem? Well, Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation and appreciate your time today, uh, Sebastian and Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi, I'm Ellen Mallerney Barnes. And if I'm talking at you, you know you've made it to our red questionnaire segment. This month, we're chatting with Nigel Hughes, the longtime managing director of our office in Manchester, England. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. Hello, Ellen. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here. I am gonna just launch right into our questions. And the first for you is, how would you describe your job to a child? I, I've done it. Any, I've done it. Anybody who's, who's got kids must always have had to describe what it is they do at work. I just, I, I can't be doing with going into the, when you go into the school and you have to explain it to a whole class full, because that's, that's hopeless. But you, you have to make just 
easy, easy comparisons, don't you? Because I could say we do all kinds of worthy things or there's all kinds of brand reputations that we manage. But I sat with my kids on holiday when they were a bit younger, reading the paper by the pool. And I just picked up an article that was placed by our team. And I said, oh, that was me. So they were convinced that I write for newspapers. I was a newspaper man, apparently, and, and that kind of stuck. I, I, I tried to tell them that it was it was advertising as well. It's somewhere in the middle, but they looked at me blankly and, you know, I, I had to stick with that. What's even, have you ever tried to explain, have you ever tried to explain what it is you do to your mum? Yeah. That's even harder. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 have, I have had that. Um, I, I expect we had a client. We had a client once that um, they they staged children's parties, right? And so we were trying to obviously you know, get more children's birthday parties booked at this restaurant. And that was the the job that we were trying to do. And I went along to along to one of them, and I looked at the menu. And on the menu, there was they didn't even serve jelly. That's a UK thing. It's called Jell-O in the US. Right, and jelly and ice cream is a staple of, of kids' parties. I couldn't understand why, if they want to, if they want to host kids' parties, why are they not selling jelly and ice cream anymore? And I asked them and they said that it was uh, because the kids don't want it. They, they want donuts nowadays. Well, that was fantastic for me. This was a real news piece that, that we ended up getting, in, it, was, it was in all the media in the UK at the time. Um, and it was future looks wobbly for the humbly, the humble jelly. I think this was the headline that we had. Right. And it was all the point about these, these people who are putting on kids' parties, they don't have jelly and ice cream anymore, which was fantastic. And it got lots of coverage and they got lots of profile. And my mum said, I I saw that. I saw that. It was I thought, fantastic. At last she understands what I do. And she said, Yes, it made me. So I did. I went to the shop and I bought some jelly. I love- I well, no, mum, that, that wasn't what I wanted. We were trying to sell children's parties, not jelly. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, you were able to tell her that you had identified that angle, and that's how that story had landed in the paper. I, I did. I think she kind of understands it these days, but she likes gardening better, you know. I completely understand that. Well, tell me, what is your favorite place that you've ever traveled, and why? I, I'm not a big, big traveler, really. I don't think we are in in my family, you know, holidays are quite modest within a short flight time, all this kind of stuff, which there's an irony here, seeing as how we we work for this global, you know, merged media organisation that, you know, we're touching different markets and speaking to colleagues all over the world, but I probably don't don't travel as much as any of them, really. Um, Do you know what we've been doing because of lockdown and then also because of the fact that you can't go from country to country? We're just exploring Britain again and again. And what a, what a brilliant country it is, you know, whether it's weekends or, or it's weeks or, 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 or whatever. You know, there's people spending a fortune to come to come to our country, to come and have a look around when it's on our doorstep, um, which we're taking advantage of at home, you know, quite a lot at the minute. And that, so that's probably where I'm in love with at the moment. It's true of of everybody because we all live in great places and we ignore what's under our nose, don't we? Well, moving on to our third question, do you have a favorite blog or podcast that you'd like to tell us about that we should be reading or listening to? I I was thinking about this. Whenever I tell anybody about this uh, podcast, 
nobody can quite believe it. And then they go off and they listen to it and, and they, how, how did I not, not hear of this? There's, there's a podcast in the UK called Soda Jerker. I don't know why it's called that or, or even what it means. Um, but it's, it, it's two guys who are, they're musicians and they're songwriters. They're from Liverpool. Um, they're not famous in, in any way. Um, I think they've probably written some songs that were modest hits. I don't know. I'm probably doing them a real disservice here. <laughs> um, but I, I'd never heard of them before this. And even when I've researched it further, I have no idea. But what their podcast is about, and they're up to 200 episodes now, wow. is they, they, they interview songwriters about a particular album that they made or a period in their music career. And, you know, they, they quiz them about it. And, and as I say, there's 200 episodes. Now, that in itself is kind of unremarkable until I tell you the type of people that they've had on. They, these are just some guys from, you know, a small city in the, in the north of England who somehow over the phone have, have got in. They're not, they don't get paid. You know, this is, this is like a hobby, you know. Yeah. Um, but somehow they, they've got 200 guests that, on my last look, I was looking at Paul Simon, Sting. Elvis Costello, Moby, Beck, David Crosby. These are hugely famous people Yeah, who, who are on here talking to these guys. And it's not like it's the Letterman show or something. It's just this small podcast. Right. And so how have they done that? And, and the only thing I can figure out is how they get these great guests is they ask them about the work that they've been doing, but they ask on their terms. So it's not as if the, the guest has got anything to promote. It's not as if the, the, the host is hero-worshipping them. No, they ask them questions about music. So they'll say a particular song and they'll say, that was a really interesting use of a, a, a piccolo trumpet there that you had in the background. And you can hear this worldwide superstar feeling that you're the first person who's ever pointed that out to me or ever noticed this in an interview. So yes, I'm going to answer your question because there was a reason why I chose that instrument, you know, and it just shows you, if you ask me, it just shows you how, how you can engage with people if you engage with them on, on their level, on what they want to talk about, you know, with, without you setting an agenda. And I think there's probably a lesson there. It's really good. So did Jerker. I would, I, I would recommend that. I have to say though, as you know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I've been traveling a lot on the train now, I, I don't drive as much as I used to. I travel a lot on the train. So I've, I've kind of taken up reading again. Podcasts were kind of like always for the car. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm reading again now. I'm, I'm rereading now. Do you, know, do you know the fame formula? Do you know that book? I don't. It's, there's a PR guy, in, in well-known PR guy in the UK called Mark Borkowski, um, who's done, you know, publicist stuff for many, many years. Kind of thing. He's probably well-known in the States as well. Um, and he wrote this book called the Fame, called the Fame Formula, and it, it's really good because it's like a look back through the annals of time of where PR comes from. And he has all those old Hollywood publicists. Well, they're not even Hollywood from when the movie started, which was New York rather than Hollywood. And it goes right the way back to Barnum, you know, in the circus, right? And and tells stories of why he was such a you know a great uh, publicity agent, you know, Barnum who had the circus, he bought an elephant, Jumbo the elephant, and, and he used to walk it, you know, they used to take it into towns, you know, before the circus arrived in town, yeah. and he'd find the most impoverished farmer, and, and used to get his plough, and he'd have the elephant 
driving the plough as a publicity stunt before the before the circus arrived. Well, that you know, we're still using the same kind of tricks now. Also, by the way, I believe it's still a law in some American states that elephants are not allowed on farmland. <laughs> it's a barnum, right? In, in you know the nineteenth century, great fun. I I also love that you've been in this industry for so long and you're still learning about it and fascinated by it, delighted by it. I am, I am, but I also uh, I also notice how some things are similar to other things that have been, and there's a new twist on it, you know? When you look at and that particular book that I'm talking about there, there's a really interesting, um, the, the guys, the first, the first publicists, right, for the movies in, in, in the States, one of the, the simple um, tricks that they used to do was uh, they used to write letters to the local newspaper objecting to whatever the film was that was coming out because it was debauched or it was yeah. some new set of scandal that what what on earth could these movie people take us to new depths? Um, and, they, and they used to and they used to be published in the newspaper and there'd be a big stampede then from the local community demanding to watch this film because sure as sure as heck if you if you tell somebody they can't do it they'll want to do it you know and they learned that a long time ago and that's like one of the oldest publicist tricks in the book isn't it? All right, Nigel, is there a certain headline that's been grabbing your attention? Um, if we read up on anything this month, what should it be and why? There's only one story that is, you know, in the UK this week, which is uh, Raducanu, you know, who's won the US Open. Mm. Uh, she's 18 years old. Britain doesn't win tennis that often. Virginia Wade in the 1970s was, was the last woman, I think, to actually win something. But that's the only story... It, you know, if, if you were trying to place an article over the last few days, it's very difficult because every page is, is full of, of Emma. But the, the thing to really look at is, you know, Piers Morgan is a, a pundit over here and he was a pundit, of course, on, uh, he was in uh, America's Got Talent as well, I think, wasn't he? Um, and he was a, he's very controversial and he, he gets to the point of actually offensive, really, because this, this girl, she retired from Wimbledon in the fourth round because she was she was suffering. I think she was struggling, um, you know, and mentally she was struggling, you know, to cope with what was going on. She's only a young girl, 18 years old. And Piers Morgan really was uh, unforgiving of her right at that time and effectively said she was weak. She's 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 no sports person, you know, to really be um, idolized in any kind of way. What she's going to have to learn is if you want to succeed in sport, you need to toughen up. And he was roundly booed for that, you know, because it was not a not nice things to say. Well, she's gone on to win the US Open, for which, you know, Twitter has bombarded him to say, what do you think of that now, Piers? Um, to which he appears to be taking credit for saying, well, you see, I told you she just needed to toughen up. So I'm glad she took my advice. So I don't know, you know, is this a new story or is it just entertainment? I don't know which it is, but I'm very happy for her anyway. Yeah. Trying to think how to seg into this nice this next question <laughs> gracefully, but it's kind of a non sequitur. Um, what is your what is your guilty pleasure? I thought about this because I knew you were going to ask this question. I settled on the British royal family. I don't know if I'm a royalist or not. I don't really know. I just know that I'm interested in all the pomp and the ceremony, and fascinated and absorbed by it all, and the buildings and. The tradition and all those kind of things, which is quite a difficult thing 
for for somebody for, from my background, certainly when it, when I was brought up, you know, when I was growing up in the 1980s, you know, um, and certainly we could still remember the Sex Pistols, which was 1977, so we could remember that. So to be anything other than absolutely scornful of the privilege of the royal family was, you know, that was, that was abhorrent to anybody in my friendship group. You know, you you were supposed to despise them with, with all all of your all of your might. And then I kind of grown into them. And I wonder why. I wonder why that is. And I think it's because I love history. Mm. I absolutely love history. And the British royal family is one of those things. That it, it is a relic of history. It's there. It's living and it's in front of you. You know, I mean, because the, the history of Britain and probably of, of kingdoms, mm. right, literally, is the history of kings and queens. And, you know, it's probably only from the mid-19th century where that changed to become politicians rather than kings and queens. And so, you know, you're still in a situation where, you know, these people have, have a direct line back to all of those things that you were really, really fascinated about. And that's that's a, a guilty pleasure of mine, you know. I mean, particularly, I think if you're living through history when you've got the longest reigning, I think, British monarch on the throne right now, then you are living through history, which is another interesting point, by the way. I think the the three... The three longest serving monarch, Elizabeth I, Victoria, and Elizabeth II, I could, women, they seem to do the job okay because they stick around. Yeah. I like, that's a, that's a theme too with um, the US Open winner that you just mentioned. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our chat. It was great fun. Just don't ask me a question six. I can't think of anything. <laughs> okay. You did your five. You did great. Thank you so much, Nigel. And it was good to finally um, meet you. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for joining the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas. Please make sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.